Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, that's us, things which must shortly take place. And he, again being Jesus, sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. This is the Apostle John, the same author of the Gospel of John in three little letters, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he, again John, saw. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And roughly the year 32 A.D., some 40 days following his resurrection, which occurred three days after his crucifixion, Jesus led a group of his 120 closest disciples one final time to the top of the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 4, we pick up the narrative. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfast towards heaven, as Jesus went up, behold, we're told, Two men stood by them in white apparel, likely angels, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. And the chronology of the events progressing from the ascension of Jesus to the book of Revelation which was written roughly in the mid-90s. Much had taken place. Ten days following their return to Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised, was poured out on the church. In response to this incredible movement of God, Peter stands up and boldly preaches a sermon declaring Jesus to be the Christ, the Savior of the world. On day one, the inception, 3,000 souls were added to their ranks. While the city of Jerusalem may have been ground zero for this new moving of God, over the coming years, the good news of Jesus would spread out, as Jesus predicted it would, into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. With time, the gospel would then jump beyond the borders of Israel, with churches being established in the Syrian cities of Damascus and Antioch in the north. In fact, on the way to one of these cities, intending to do Christians harm, a religious fanatic, a zealot by the name of Saul, would find the trajectory of his life forever altered through a supernatural encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Then using the intricate system of Roman roads, as well as shipping lanes, the second half of the book of Acts records how this man, Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, would embark on three different missionary journeys, taking the gospel into the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
Not only would the Apostle Paul plant churches all throughout a region known as Asia Minor, that was present-day Turkey, but he would carry the gospel into Eastern Europe, crossing a continent. Astoundingly, by the time that Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD, and the Jewish people forced to flee their homeland, the church founded by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would be a vibrant community across the world. It would be a global institution with a cross-cultural appeal. Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, Greek and barbarian alike, were all becoming followers of Jesus. In less than 40 years, what had began on the day of Pentecost had spread across the world. By the time John receives his revelation of Jesus Christ, not only was there a, a vibrant church located in the heart of the capital, the capital city of Rome, but according to Philippians 4 verse 22, Paul goes so far as to confirm there were even believers in Caesar's household. Astonishing. With the destruction of Jerusalem came to the end of at that first church. As such, in the years that followed, many of the original 12 apostles would be forced to move out into new uncharted territories. For example, Andrew went north into what is today Russia. Matthew and Philip moved south into Ethiopia and parts of northern Africa. Thomas set out east, ultimately landing in India. The apostle Peter would find himself pastoring the church in Rome with John in Ephesus, where he would oversee the collection of seven churches in an area called Galatia, again, Asia Minor. While it's sure the good news was advancing like wildfire across the known world, we should note that its spread would not be allowed to continue unopposed. Opposition would be mounted. Aside from the consistent persecution of Christians by religious Jews hardened in their rejection of Jesus, things would take a dramatic turn for the worse. When Paul would stand before the sadistic emperor Nero to give an account for the spread of Christianity and more particularly his role in it. Historically, we know that Nero's exposure to the gospel and subsequent rejection of Jesus caused an already unstable sociopath to grow even more unhinged. On the night of July 19, 64 AD, a great fire began in the various merchant shops that surrounded the Circus Maximus, located in downtown Rome. After nine long days, the fire had destroyed roughly two-thirds of the city. You heard the expression, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, it comes from this. The commoners believe that this devastating fire had actually been started by Nero and his minions to clear enough land real estate for the building of a new extravagant palace. According to the Annals, first century Roman historian Tacticus, he writes that needing a scapegoat for the political fallout that Nero was experiencing on account of the fire, he decided to blame Christians. It was the original fake news. But a great persecution resulted. Of this time period, Fox's Book of Martyrs records how this madman Nero would have Christians sewn into the skins of wild beasts and fed to packs of hungry dogs. Another account records how Nero would have believers dipped in hot wax, fixed to trees and set on fire 
to illuminate his garden parties. During this first wave of persecution, Nero would order Paul to be rearrested and beheaded. The apostle Peter would be crucified, this time though upside down. Following Nero's death on June 9th, 68 AD, the church would experience about a dozen or so years of relative peace until a man by the name of Domitian came to power in 81 AD. While Domitian proved to be as equally sadistic and brutal as Nero, the great difference between these two leaders was that Domitian, unlike Nero, he was sane. He was in his right mind, and thus his persecution of the church, not random, but instead systematic and fanatical. In his attempt to restore the empire that was rapidly in decline, Domitian revived what was known as the imperial cult, which deified the Caesar and his household. Once a year, every living person under Roman dominion was required to offer a pinch of incense while declaring, Caesar is Lord. A failure to do so would result in your execution. Not only did the phrase, Jesus is Lord, become popular during this time period, but as you can imagine, a great number of Christians would lose their lives. In the end, Domitian would order John, who at the time was the last of the living original apostles, to be arrested and publicly executed. Church father Tertullian records how John, who was by now a feebled old man, was brought into the Colosseum there in Rome. And given one last final chance to declare Caesar Lord, as you can imagine, John refused. So Domitian ordered that he be executed by being lowered into a large vat of boiling oil. Going to deep fry the old man. Amazingly, while the crowd expected screams, horror, they instead heard John worshiping, doing the backstroke. Praising Jesus as he was supernaturally preserved. Undoubtedly, this freaked out Domitian. Freak out you too. So he has John exiled to the tiny rock island of Patmos. As a prisoner of Rome, this elderly man would spend, accordingly, the rest of his days, working in one of the quarries the island was legendary for. As we're going to see, Beginning in verse 9, it was while in Patmos, after all of these things had happened, that John would receive and record this revelation of Jesus Christ. It's important for you to understand that the backdrop for the revelation of Jesus Christ had been this incredibly savage, demonic, second wave of Christian persecution. Refusing to recant their, their faith, believers, men, women, and children were being rounded up and fed to the lions, while spectators looked on and cheered with delight. Now the Christians knew what Jesus had said. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus had been clear, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. But the qu pressing question on everyone's mind was how long would this persecution continue? Before Jesus would return. As you study the New Testament. As well as early church history. There is no doubt. No question. That the imminent return of Jesus Christ. For his church. 
was a central belief and expectation. In his letter to the church located in Thessalonica that was experiencing the first wave of persecution wrought by Nero, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 15 through 18, he says, For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another, Paul says. Comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. But it's not going to last forever. Regarding his epistles, the Apostle Paul would reference the soon return of Christ four more times in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and then three times in his second. Additionally, the subject of Jesus' return to the earth, Paul will write about. He broaches the subject in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, 11, and 15, Philippians 1 and 3, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 2, and lastly in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. This was a big concept to the Apostle Paul. And yet please know that the soon return of Jesus wasn't just limited to the writings of Paul. In James chapter 5, the half-brother of Jesus and lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem would write, quote, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus' other half-sibling, a man by the name of Jude, would write in verses 14 and 15 of his treatise, he says, Now Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly needs, which they have committed in an ungodly way. A lot of ungodliness going on. And all of the things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In 2 Peter 3, the great apostle would pin, Where is the promise of his coming? That's what's on everyone's mind. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Twice, in his own letters, John the Apostle would reference Jesus' coming. This is all before the book of Revelation. In his first letter, he mentions that when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Then, regarding those who would not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. In his second letter, John describes these false teachers as being deceivers and an antichrist. Now the question begs, why in the world would the early followers of Jesus be so obsessed with Jesus' imminent return? Well, aside from the fact, the very first exhortation the church received Following Jesus' ascension to heaven was what? His soon return, right? Right off the bat. Hey, you, what are you looking at? He's going to come back. It's, it's all good. He's coming back. Okay, sweet. We're looking for that. But aside from all of this, Jesus himself repeatedly throughout his ministry promised he was coming back and he encouraged his followers to watch and wait for this to happen. Let me just give you two of what could be many examples. 
In Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, Jesus commanded, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allow his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, in Mark 13, verses 32 through 37, Jesus said, Of that day, speaking of his coming, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. I mean, let's be real. The 90s, not the 1990s, like the original 90s, proved to be kind of a challenging decade for Christians. I mean, you had Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, all throughout the empire experiencing an incredible systematic persecution. By this point, all of the apostles had been martyred. They tried to martyr John, but now he's been exiled to Patmos. On top of all of this, the church has been praying for, looking for, waiting for the coming of Jesus for roughly 60 years. I mean, you got to imagine in the context of all this, they got to be like, where are you? Hello, Jesus, have you forgotten us? What's the deal? Like, understand, this is what made the revelation of Jesus Christ so powerful, so profound, so impactful and the moment that it was given. You see, the remedy for their present sufferings, the remedy for their genuine fears and deepest worries, the remedy for the real challenges they were facing was a fresh revelation of Jesus. In the Greek, the word we have here in verse 1, translated as revelation, is apocalypsis. It's from which we get the English word apocalypse. You have an old school Bible, Old King James, it might actually says the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's a noun in the Greek, in the feminine tense. The word describes something that was concealed, but has now been laid bare or made naked through an uncovering, an unveiling. Like for a mental picture, think of it like this. How many of you like the price is right? It's been the pandemic. You've all watched The Price is Right once or twice. But you know at the very end, The Price is Right, you get the two final contestants, you get the showcase showdown, right? They're going to have a whole bunch of prizes. And in one moment, there the curtain gets peeled back, and you get to see what you could win. Like that's what the word is describing. It's an unveiling, a peeling back. You don't know what's on the other side, now you do. Why? Something's happened. In the context in which this word is being used here in verse 1, we know that this book was given, why? In order to reveal the true essence of the person and character of Jesus Christ. Like Also notice that this book is presented to us as the revelation. See that? The reason that's significant is the use of the definite article, the, 
as well as the singular tense revelation. It's not revelations. It's not plural. Singular. The definite article, revelation, singular, indicates that the purpose of this book was to uncover or lay bare for us a component or aspect of the person of Jesus not yet known, not yet seen, not yet revealed where? And the other 65 books of the Bible that come before it. Like in many ways you can translate verse 1 as the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that this aspect of the character of Jesus, previously concealed from view, could only be revealed to his servants, how? Through the permission of God, the Father. We're told in verse 1 that this book presents the revelation that God gave, or better translated, allowed in the Greek, his son Jesus to now show his servants. Or this idea of showing is to expose to the eyes. (laughs) For those of you who have uttered those two daunting words, I do. You understand that at some point in time, after the vows, a day arrives when you finally, for the first time, meet the person you actually married. It's not, it's not before I do. And it might not be immediately afterwards. It, it tends to be, we describe it, you know, after the honeymoon period. What do I mean? Like, there's a day when a part of your spouse's personality previously concealed from your view, comes roaring to the surface. Like, before you said, I do, you may have been told it was there. You didn't believe anyone. You know, love is blind. We don't see things. Like, you might have even been warned by loved ones. You heard the rumors. Not your spouse. But then... And one unexpected moment, something is said, something done, and for better or worse, the veil gets pulled back. And your spouse, who your spouse really is, gets laid bare, unveiled before you. For most of us, this ends up being a negative experience, where our love and commitment now demands long-suffering, and patience, and likely therapy. But regarding our relationship with Jesus, which is the context for this, this surprise development, this unveiling of something about the Lord, serves as a welcome development. It's good. It's as though in the context of everything the church was presently going through, the bride of Christ was experiencing There was a part of the groom's character, a part of the groom's personality that the bride hadn't seen yet, that needed to be revealed. That's what the book's about. It's interesting really to consider, isn't it? But up to this point in time, while through the circulation of the four gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the church indeed knew a lot about Jesus, didn't they? The implications here are their understanding of Jesus, even with the Gospels, was so incomplete that they needed this new revelation. Like that there were truths 
aspects of Jesus' character and personality that hadn't been revealed that this book does. You know, through the Gospels, the church knew Jesus as the suffering servant who willingly donned a crown of thorns bearing the shame of a cross. But in light of what they were presently experiencing, it was now important the church also see Jesus as a triumphal king of heaven, coronated with a crown of gold, glory, and honor, enthroned in power. From Jerusalem, Jesus was judged by wicked men and in turn took upon himself the wrath of God. And yet the church now also needed to see that a day was coming when the same Jesus returning to the same city would pour out the wrath of God on the world in his judgment of wicked man. During his earthly ministry, Jesus presented himself to the world as the Lamb of God. He was meek and mild. And he was persecuted by those he came to save. And yet for a church experiencing a similar persecution, it was now important they also see that Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Like no longer meek and mild, Jesus would come roaring back to earth in strength and vengeance. The persecuted, the day would come, would become the prosecutor. When Jesus first entered the holy city, we're told in the Gospels how he sat on a lowly donkey, willing to surrender his life to his enemies. But in Revelation, Jesus now wants you and I, his followers, to know that when he returns, it will not be on a colt, a donkey. He will be mounted on a white stallion, swinging and wielding a great sword, and he will take the lives of his enemies. He will be victorious in the end. You know, in order to grasp how truly significant this revelation is, just imagine for a moment how incomplete our understanding of Jesus would be without this final book. All the things I just mentioned, we would not know about. We would not have seen. It would be incomplete. In fact, the case can be made that without the book of Revelation, you and I really wouldn't know Jesus at all. This is why I believe the best way to view the book is not to read or to classify it as being a book of prophecy, which it is, but rather to see, view, and read it as the fifth and final gospel. There are some who debate the meaning of this word, the revelation of Jesus Christ. From the Greek, scholars will debate whether or not it should be translated as of Jesus Christ or a revelation from Jesus Christ. The reality is it doesn't matter. You see, all the things that Jesus reveals to us are designed to reveal Jesus to us. His actions speak louder than his words. He's known and revealed through his deeds. You know, in a radical way, this book is completely unique. And that Jesus is both the teacher and the subject, the revealer and the revelation. With all these things in mind, let's get back to verse 1. The book opens, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, and then notice, things which must shortly take place. For starters, this phrase, which must shortly take place, tells us right from the jump, that the book will contain, it will present, what we'd call irrefutable prophecies concerning the future 
of world events. Like, note, these are not predictions of the future. This is not an expose of what might occur. Like, we'll find what we find in the book, what's described, will. It will happen. In fact, look again. We're told it must take place. Must. Now, the obvious challenge with the introduction centers on the timing of when these things would take place. And it's sad, but the English translation of this word shortly, it's misleading. Because it lends the impression, leaves the impression, that John is saying to us that the events he's about to describe would be happening soon. Considering that John wrote in the mid-90s, and we presently find ourselves some 1,930 years later, with these things not occurring, obvious problems arise. And yet, understand, while our English translation kind of is convoluted and confusing, this is not how anyone would have read it in the, the original Greek manuscript. No one would have been confused by this. You see, in the Greek, the word translated shortly is in takos. Like, in contrast to the way that we would interpret shortly as implying something would be happening soon, and takos is used to denote the way the events would unfold once they began. You see, when these, finally, when these things finally do take place, they will happen suddenly and roll out very quickly. That's what the words articulate. What's also interesting about the word is that it does, kind of a powerful way, it does give us a, a tail. If you're playing poker and you look for a tail, you know, something to tip off, you know, if they're bluffing. There's, there is a tale kind of in this, in this Greek word in tacos. For how, we'll know when we're getting closer to the events happening. It doesn't tell us when the events will happen. When they happen, they'll happen fast. But it does tell us how we'll know we're close to the events beginning. Like to this point, this Greek word in tacos is, is, is the word that we derive our English term, tachometer. You know what a tachometer is. So in your car, you have a speedometer. That tells you how fast you're going. Your tachometer measures the speed of the engine itself in RPMs. You see, not only will these future events play out quickly when they finally happen, but the idea is that these things on God's prophetic timeline will rev up, accelerate, intensify in frequency the closer you get to them actually happening. Let me try to illustrate this idea as best as I can. If you're traveling from Atlanta with Miami as your final destination, so that's the journey, Atlanta to Miami, you're looking at roughly, without stops, a 10-hour drive. With the help of Google, you know, heading south, using I-75 is kind of your best route. But apart from your smartphone and a general sense of where south is, like there's very little sign, once you set out, that you're actually even heading the right direction. You're just going, I know it's south. My, fart, my smartphone says go that way. Now the first indication on your journey that you're on track takes place about an hour and a half later. As you pass through Macon, again, which is south of Atlanta. So you're like, sweet, I am going south. We're not in the mountains anymore. I mean, as you continue, you cross the Nat line. You know that with your windshield. It blows up. You enter peanut country. You're like, I'm going the right way. Finally, at long last, just south of Aldosta, you cross the border, Georgia and Florida. And it's there. It's there. 
You finally see, I mean, you've been in the car for a while, but you get your first sign. Miami, 438 miles. For the next few hours, as you drive through Lake City, Ocala, the villages, Florida's friendliest hometown, you'll get a sign about every 75 or so miles updating your progress. Not frequent, not often, but you get them. Not long after you continue your journey, you do get the biggest sign yet. To get to Miami, you're told you're going to have to get off I-75 South and take the Florida Turnpike to Orlando. From Disney, you get another sign. Miami, 236 miles. At this point, I mean, you're pretty confident. You're going the right direction. Miami's up ahead. The closer you get, the more signs for Miami are happening. You don't have to doubt me on any of this. I drove it this week. Just kidding. As you work your way through the heart of Florida, signs are coming more frequently. At Yeehaw Junction, you see Miami, 163 miles. Continuing your drive south in Port St. Lucie, you read another sign that says Miami, 113 miles. Soon after that, another sign pops up telling you if you'd like to avoid tolls, get off the turnpike, take I-95 south. You agree. Working your way down, now the eastern coast of Florida, signs. I mean, you're getting closer. They're happening now with more frequency. Really, at it, more than any point in your journey. Once in Boca Raton, you get a sign, Miami, 45 miles. Now with every mile, you're getting more and more signs. In Fort Lauderdale, finally, you read Miami, 28 miles. At this point, there are signs everywhere. Welcome to North Miami, exit for Miami Beach, Marlins Park ahead, Miami International Airport. Everywhere you look, there are just signs telling you what? I am real close. Now, while there was very little indication when you were leaving that you were even heading the right direction early, the closer you get to your final destination, naturally, the more signs accelerate. You see, not only does Intacos tell us the events recorded in the book will happen quickly, but we'll know we're closer to those events being initiated when the frequency of signs intensifies. To this point, there is no question we do live in an exciting time when the conditions for the end-time scenario described in the book of Revelation is more realistic than at any other point in human history. Now, Jesus, it could still be another thousand years before he comes, but just where we are now. Like, for the first time since the revelation was originally given to John, Israel is once again a sovereign nation. Unseen since the fall of Rome, Europe has been unified into a single union. At no other time than the present, we see national markets forged together and a global interdependent economy run by just a few banks. Today, we possess weapons that can kill huge segments of the population instantly, as well as cause ecological disasters on a massive scale. Air travel has shrunken the planet. Satellite and cable make it possible to witness events occurring in the world in real time. The internet has brought the world closer to a return to Babel by linking together all the peoples of the world. Like truth is we've had more prophetic signs occur in our lifetime than in virtually the 20 centuries beforehand. Like the stage is set. Could this be the evidence things are revving up and may shortly take place? Possibly. Maybe. If it isn't, 
I'd like to see what that looks like. Let's continue. After God granted Jesus permission to reveal an aspect of himself to his servants, by revealing things which must shortly take place, we're told, and Jesus sent and signified it, this being the revelation, by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. This phrase that Jesus sent and signified the revelation is insightful because it tells us how the revelation will be articulated, like the form, the method of communication. Jesus would reveal himself by revealing the future using signs. One of the intriguing things about Revelation is that it introduces absolutely zero new theology, zero new doctrine. I mean, it's the last book of the Bible, meaning that its purpose is to bring everything else in Scripture to a close. Naturally, one of the assumptions made of the reader is that that person has already read the previous 65 books before getting to the book of Revelation. Like the idea, the assumption, is that the reader is already familiar with established biblical concepts, imagery, and precedents. Every image that you'll encounter in this book is not mysterious. And in fact, it has its interpretive meaning in its Old Testament first use. Of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, I counted them all, 278 or a little less than 70%, are actually direct references to the Old Testament. Like one commentator cited 17 references to Exodus, 22 to Jeremiah, 43 to Ezekiel, 43 to the Psalms, 79 to Isaiah, 15 to Zechariah, and 53 to the prophecies of Daniel. To this point, pastor commentator David, David Guzik describes Revelation as an Old Testament book placed in the New Testament. So, and we're going to wrap things up this morning with this thought. My apologies, we didn't get further. But here's a question. Why would such a profound revelation of Jesus Christ employ or use such a complex style? Like This is really important about Jesus, so why... Like, why use all the signs? Like, signs that necessitate the other 65 books to provide the cipher for. There are a few answers that scholars will give to this question. First, there are some who argue that Jesus uses symbols to conceal the real meaning of the book from the secular enemies of the church. You'll hear this. That by using code, Christians could understand the book, while the Romans would read it, Throw it away as, as just undecipherable gibberish. Others postulate that John was forced into using symbols because he had a really hard time describing what he saw in the future. Like in verse 2, we act, we're told that John bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ. He bore witness to all the things that he saw with his eyes. Like as you can imagine, someone time traveling from the first century there would be a linguistic limitation 
to their ability to describe our present day and age, like our technological advances and whatnot. There's likely truth to these two first answers, but ultimately I believe that there's there's a greater explanation, a more simplistic one. Now, one of the great criticisms of the book of Revelation is that it's hopelessly complex, complicated, unknowable. It's why so many people end up being intimidated when it comes to studying it. And yet, I agree and disagree with this particular sentiment. Like in the end, I believe the ability to understand the book of Revelation really depends on who it is that's trying to understand it. Since you are all distracted, let me just read that again. (laughs) The ability to understand the Revelation centers on who it is that's trying to understand it. Let me explain. Because I've mentioned the book necessitates that you've read the previous 65 and can cipher the symbols to discern their meaning, which if you're like, I'm in big trouble, that's okay. That's why I'm here. We'll work through all that together. But I believe, I'm convinced that the case can be made That Jesus was intentionally seeking to limit, to restrict those who would receive this special revelation of himself to only his faithful followers. Again, verse 1 describes the book as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Why? To show who? His servants. Like, I believe for the non-Christian, this book is specifically crafted To remain mysterious to you. And yet for the Christian. I believe that Jesus has the exact opposite goal in mind. Case in point in verse 3. Think about it. We're told explicitly. Blessed is he who reads. And those who hear the words of this prophecy. And those who keep the things which are written in it. Like many scholars believe. That what's being described here. Is actually the book of Revelation being used in the ecclesiastical setting of the church assembly during a Sunday morning service. That that's what's articulated. John is given this revelation. He writes it down. Then he sends it to the churches to be distributed, to be read and studied on Sunday. Look look again. Blessed is he who reads. Notice, he, singular. And then the idea of reading is to distinguish or to make known accurately. It's what the word means. So this would describe the teacher. This is me. Blessed is the teacher. Blessed are those who hear and keep those things which are written. And notice that's in the plural. This word to keep means to consider, to learn, to study what's being said. That's you. Again, the word keep. To carefully guard, protect, cherish. The book of Revelation was designed, it was crafted, it was instructed to be taken, to be read publicly, to be studied corporately, communally. Most incredibly, Revelation is the only book in your Bible that promises such a blessing. Blessed is he who reads, blessed are those who hear, blessed are all of us who guard and cherish it. It's the only book that does this. By the way, it's also the only book that gives a warning at the end. 
you screw around with it, God's going to not be happy. Got a blessing? It's got a warning. Now, we'll discuss this in more detail in a later study. But verse 3, and I find this to be amazing. Verse 3 is, is what we would actually call the first of seven promised blessings articulated in the book. Seven blessings. Blessed is he. Seven Beatitudes, seven letters to the churches. There's a lot of correlations to these things. We'll get to it later. You see, if these 22 chapters were completely unknowable, undecipherable, confusing, how exactly could they be a blessing to anyone? I promise that our pace will pick up next week. But in closing... It really is amazing to think that while in his first coming, Jesus revealed himself to the entire world, this particular revelation, think about this, was not intended for mass consumption. This book was not written for the unbelieving world. Like the target audience for the book of Revelation wasn't seekers. That Jesus was somehow, in revealing these things, trying to convince or convert. Not at all. This book, unique, is for the believer. It's for you, it's for me, to show his servants. How glorious is it to think? I told you, this is all Christ-centric, Jesus-focused. So this is the grand thought today. How glorious and exciting it is to think. That there is a part of himself, Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior, has, has, has concealed, has reserved for just his own. It's not for everyone. This part of me is, is, is for my servants. It's for my people. Like in the end, the heart behind this book, yes, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation, the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ. But it is a revelation of the groom that he is specifically reserved for only his bride. And that's you and me. So Father, Lord, with that expectation, we thank you for what these first three verses articulate, how it sets the stage for so much more. 